honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. What up, everybody? You are listening to the Strange on Purpose podcast. It's been a while since myself and Izzy um, were co-hosting an episode, but we're finally back on track, finally back doing it how it should be. I'm excited, but these are weird, weird times that we're in with everything that's going on with COVID-19. I'm recording this from my studio. Izzy, where are you at? I think I'm in uh, think, my makeshift I I- studio. <laughs> I don't really know. It's are like, you all right? <laughs> yeah, like my guest bed is in here and like <laughs> my video games. It, maybe it's my layer. <laughs> oh, I like that. I need one of those. Yeah. I've I would call it I just want like a, a bat cave, like legit, like I like push a button and like just an elevator takes me down to just this crazy area. I mean, <laughs> for what you guys are paying for rent, they better give you a bat cave. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Um, but yeah, just crazy, crazy times, everything going on. Like, it's crazy because we were like literally on top of the world, like deal after deal, like yep. good feedback, like make like having our best year yet. And then something like this happens and it's like upside down. And you have no control. That's what's crazy. It's like it, we, we were doing everything right. And then there was just that one thing that you can't control, like a stupid little virus um, yeah. that can really not tear us down we're fine but like just tear down really just the mood right and i feel like i i've had to answer some linkedin messages because i think uh from some of my posts people think we're failing um and about to close like we're not going to close it's just um when you're when you're on top of the mountain and you fall down to the bottom like you you get in a weird place right so it's been it's been an interesting few couple weeks here but i think we're on a good good path dude that being said though like i don't know i feel like i was talking about it too like like this is exactly what we signed up for when you want to be an entrepreneur you know like we have all these people like yeah i'm a business owner but they're just hiring a bunch of not even hiring they're bringing on a bunch of unpaid interns so that it looks like they have a big team you know or they're posting on instagram or posting on linkedin or they're doing whatever but they're not actually they don't actually have a business so we're gonna see a lot of people fall off but this is legit what we signed up for like the risks the uncertainty the the ups and downs and responsibility so like i'm like low-key like kind of excited like it sounds weird but like just I'm more focused than I've ever been. Like business right now, like we've lost a lot, but um, having to pivot, having to figure it out just excites me. And on a personal level, I'm really, really, really good too. Yeah, this has been, it's been interesting because like I, we just got off a call with the rest of the team and like just talking with everybody. It it seems like we're all venturing into, and with all this free time we have, um, we're all venturing into new things, right? So like, I am really getting into like sales wise, I'm starting to focus on a specific set of clients, but then like outside of the business, like I'm getting into sewing and like sewing um, on clothing and sewing like putting together, taking apart clothing and putting it back together. It's been really, really cool and therapeutic, Um, but it's been 
dope just listening to everybody's like, hey, I'm actually working on this right now. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, I didn't think you were into that type of stuff. So just really cool. And you brought up the business portion. I think um, one of the quote, best quotes that I've ever read from one of your newsletters is where are all the business people uh, or business influencers right now and they're all working on their business and that's what's like interesting to me like I, I've gotten a few messages of you guys aren't posting consistently anymore or anything like that and it's been because we're just so focused on this like we're so focused on making sure that everything is good and making sure that the employees are happy and uh, making sure that dingo is fed <laughs> Yeah, dude. People forget that everybody's human, man. Like, we all have shit. We have families and friends that we want to make sure are okay. Employees to take care of, you know, like, make sure that they're okay and their families are okay. Like, doesn't matter how big you are, how many followers you have, but we'll figure it out. I hope everybody listening is safe, healthy. Um, appreciate you. Like, this, this episode was really, really cool. I don't even remember how I found her. I think I was, like, scrolling through... The only black golfer I know outside of Tiger Woods because he was wearing Jordans. And I was like, wow, that's dope as fuck. If I was going <laughs> to golf, I, I'd probably wear that. Uh, and then I think she like did art for him or something like that. And then she followed me back. And we went back and forth because she had a loss in her family and we were just talking. Uh, and like it's just really, really cool episode. We touched on everything from like DNI to her experience as an artist to art not being the way that it used to be. Like just a lot, a lot of cool stuff. Like her relationships with professional athletes and celebrities. Like just really good episode that has a lot of depth and real substance, especially in a time like this. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like everything that she was saying is just so on point, and she's gone through so much stuff from being an athlete to. Uh, obviously being an artist now and just helping people and I don't want to get too into it and give up too many details um, so I appreciate you guys hopefully you guys are all safe and and healthy and are washing your hands um, but here's the episode I was looking at your Instagram and you obviously have done a ton of different pieces for all these people like how how did you get started with this oh that's quite a quite a story. <laughs> um, I was an athlete uh, my whole life. I started playing soccer when I was four. Did Team BC, which in American terms is like best in your um, like the side of the country or like the top five states kind of thing. And then I did um, some Team Canada stuff when I was 15. Uh, got recruited for a Division One scholarship when I was 17 and went to the States, um, Southern Louisiana for six years and was going to be a professional soccer player because I didn't I, I hated school I only got the requirement you know the required GPA SAT score to get my scholarship everything was like soccer 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 or football um and then I had six major injuries um did both my knees did my back and then I did my back again and I had to retire from sport which is the hardest thing I love you think I love art I love soccer a hundred times more um not even a contest and hmm. so I came home from the States in 2011 and I couldn't walk. My back was so bad because I just kept playing and I like had to basically start over and it was really hard. Um, I went back to school, ironically, for sports psychology because I missed soccer so much. I literally enrolled in sports psych um, and it was the first time I actually liked school. Uh, 
And I thought about doing that. And at the same time, my mom, through her connections, got me a job at a private school teaching art, which was my kind of other passion growing up. But they wouldn't let me major in art in school because it conflicted with um, soccer practice, like the studio time. So I had to, I chose fashion design. I don't know why. Oh my gosh, it was so boring. <laughs> um, and then just an aside quickly, um, I, they make you take American history when you're de- no matter what your major is, right? So I took American history, and I'm in the deep south where it was it was still pretty pretty segregated in 2005, like especially considered to my norm in Canada. And um, so I took American history, and as like as, as I you know got out of the class, got my grade, I realized that American history did not at all match what I was experiencing in the south. I was like, this doesn't fit the narrative I'm in now. And then I took Black history. And then that fit the narrative I was in. And then I realized I can't trust institutions. And I started, I changed my major to actually black history. Um, And I studied injustice and oppression and slavery and racism and um, world history from that perspective for like six years. Ended up going to an HBCU, historically all black school, uh, Southern University A&M. And was recruited by the NAACP. And I just like started kind of working in the realm of fighting injustice and I ended up, that's how I kind of became an artist, actually. Um, so for fast forward back time in Canada, I'm in the sports ed program and teaching art at a private school. And I fell in love with teaching. Um, and at the same time, I also enrolled in a program um, with Indigenous women. It was called um, Women's Empowerment in the Salo Nation. We have, I believe it's 198 different Indian bands in, in my province alone. And there's a lot of systemic injustice and oppression and racism towards indigenous peoples in Canada. Um, kind of like how they treat African-Americans um, in the justice systems and like hiring and education, everything. That's how we treat our indigenous population in Canada. It's, it's kind of similar. Um, and so I enrolled in this program and I learned all about injustice, the injustices they faced, the real history that's taught. Because the first indigenous voice wasn't allowed to be published in Canada until 1967. So very, very biased um, retelling of history. Yeah. Um, So then I started to work in what's called art for social change. And that is um, when you work with a marginalized or oppressed, typically oppressed population and you use art as a medium and you come together and you create a project that includes art um, that tells, addresses an issue or concern to them. And so they kind of curate it and you're just there to assist. And it's like, it's kind of like a really cool collective combination um, so I, I learned how to do that. Um, anyways, so then I enrolled or applied to the University of British Columbia. They have a, one of the best teaching programs in the world. Uh, so I went there, got my teaching degree. And uh, just before that, though, I went to Brazil. Uh, there was a what's called the Street Child World Cup. The World Cup is put on for street children every four years. It's run by FIFA, Street World Football in the UK. And... Um, I was the first Canadian that was recruited for it and I taught art and soccer to street children from around the world and it kind of changed my whole life. Uh, a month before the tournament, the captain of Team Brazil was murdered named Rodrigo Kelton on his 14th birthday and I, he was the first oil painting that I ever did. I painted him and I brought it with me to Brazil and it changed kind of my whole life, my trajectory, my understanding of art, humanity, connection, the power of art to unite. And it was crazy because I was like Brazilian because I did this for the team and for the people. It was like insane. And they, they welcomed me as family. It was, you know, 
So that's how I actually got into painting. And then I realized that, you know, painting murder street children is not going to, they're not going to be a big hit, you know, in the art market. So how could I build a platform to where I could eventually paint issues that matter to me? And I realized, okay, what do I have? I didn't go to art school because you can go the traditional route, get an MFA, BFA, MFA, you know, go and go the gallery route. Didn't have those connections. I had athletes. So I learned how to paint athletes. And and my plan was to try and build a platform for five years and then at the five-year point, see if I could work with any of the organizations that I really love, like War Child, Save the Children, et cetera. And um, I just, I'm an ambassador now for War Child and I'm actually doing a series for them. So yeah, long journey. That's legit. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't that's remember where I was uh, where I was reading it, um, and something something you just talked about just like reminded me of it. But I was reading a post somewhere on Facebook by like a teacher or something. He was inner city teaching inner city um, in the inner city, and he was like, um, he's like a young black guy. I forget what he said specifically, but he's like like all of like me growing up, like my story. Like when you're learning it from an institution, you know, yeah. or you're learning it from whatever, whatever the source is. Typically, it's like our story starts with slavery. Yeah. And like we, we don't learn anything else, you know, like that's it's just slavery and it's dark. And like that's where our beginnings begin. Um, and it's just so important to have all those perspectives. And I, I was reading like um, an old article on you and it said Carling is an artist so that she can paint the change she wishes to see in the world. Yeah. Like what what's what's that change? So it's, it's, again, it's like it's working with these populations and addressing, addressing oppression and addressing injustice from a different point of view because for most people other than those who are, who are unfortunately blind or can't use their eyes, um, our visual culture, like the first thing that hits us is what we see, right? The colors, the, the designs, the composition. We are hit most first and foremost by what we see mostly and what we hear. But what, what you see, you don't need anything you could be scrolling, you don't need headphones, you don't need volume. You could be out somewhere and you see a painting. We're very, very informed by our visual culture. And so I wanted to kind of find a way to artistically and aesthetically address these issues, address injustice, address oppression that's informed by the populations that it affects. So it's really this kind of this collaboration, this communion. Um, and so I aim to like human trafficking um, street, the street child population is probably like the most vulnerable children in the world is where my biggest passion is to help. Um, so I've helped street children at the Street Child World Cup. Um, I've worked with Syrian refugees in Canada with, along with my students. I did a campaign with students and Syrian refugees. It was amazing. Uh, I, I've worked with child soldiers and right now I'm working with children who are child refugees in Afghanistan. So yeah, it's, it's using, yeah these kind of stories and bringing them to life and telling them in a unique way using art. Dude, it's crazy how everything is just stories. Yeah. That's amazing. I, it's crazy how much you really invest in, like you're using your platform, obviously, like you said, to, to, to provide change. And I was reading an article about you, um, few years ago or the article was dated a few years ago um, where you went uh, somewhere in Vancouver uh, to actually uh, collaborate with a couple children on a pair of New Balances oh, yeah. and telling that story telling their helping tell their story through that so like 
do you want to go into that experience and how like what the what you were trying to say with that shoe yeah so new balance i had done a new balance vancouver had an event and they asked me to come paint live this is a couple years ago and at the time i was also a youth worker so when i graduated with my teaching degree i got a job part-time as a youth worker and so i worked in the city of richmond and it was in what's called the media lab so we provided media graphic lessons and uh, opportunities for youth to come in so we could help them with a the resume we could help them apply for a job we could give them uh training in film photography graphic design and then they could be outsourced by by the local city government if they needed like a, a student to come film and then from there they actually could get hired and stuff it was a really cool program so a lot of these kids are vulnerable youth or we call them at-risk youth or low asset youth and so we had uh, you know transgender youth and um, gay and lesbian youth etc so I got this opportunity to design a shoe for gay pride with New Balance and I was like well I'm not a part of either of these communities that's the thing too because a lot of artists I've found kind of take advantage of or different oppressed populations like they said like there was one artist in New York who wanted who painted Emmett Till in his in his casket without the permission of the family and she's known for her com comic art so she gives comic relief in art and it was just it was just tasteless it was just for me that should be illegal what she did uh, so a lot of arts kind of take advantage of these issues. So my thing is, okay, I've been asked to do this. How can I collaborate with the population this affects? And so I was like, well, my youth. So I reached out to my youth, brought the shoe in, and then they brainstormed and came up with an idea that that respected and celebrated each population in the LGBTQ plus community. And so they designed the shoe, and then I just painted it based on their ideas. That's awesome. I, I It's crazy how, like... You, like, you're not afraid to admit, like, okay, maybe I'm not the expert in this, right? So, yeah. and, like, going out and giving the opportunity to all these different youth out there, um, it's really cool. And it's a message that um, we, it's consistent uh, in every podcast episode. Everybody that we have on is investing in the youth in some way. So, uh, we recently had on Dion Walcott from Yellow Brick Sneakers in New York, and um, one of his big things is just empowering. Uh, he's originally from Toronto, so and didn't, comes from humble beginnings. So, um, really empowering the people that or the kids that are growing up in his old neighborhood and everything like that. And it's it, it's an amazing story, and it's awesome from almost your side of the the table when you get to see these these youth light up at the end of the day and and see how much art or shoes or uh, tech or anything uh, really just makes them light up and changes their their outlook on life for anything like that. So that's that's amazing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, totally. It uh, what you're talking about though, I would say the because this was a short kind of collaboration project. I did a two month long campaign as a student teacher <laughs> during my practicum, and we uh, I designed an entire curriculum on the Syrian refugee civil war on the Syrian civil war, and then we worked with Syrian refugees. So we, we learned about the war. And then we came up with a project and campaign and I was teaching a social justice 12 class and an IB arts 11 class and I combined them. You weren't really allowed to do that, but I got permission. And so I combined <laughs> art students and social justice students and then I made them do each other's, like I made them switch over. So they had the opportunity though. So if, if a social justice student had never painted before, but they wanted to learn, they were allowed to and I would teach them. If a, 
if the art student wanted to be more on the social justice activism, have a role more in that than they were allowed to. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life, honestly. When you give power to youth, and when you give them actual power to change, they rise to the challenge every single time. I had one student who was a Chinese immigrant and he spoke, he gave the most profound speech talking about when he came to Canada with his parents, how, and he was basically providing some insight what it's like being someone from a different culture, coming into a new, new country, new community, and how he was bullied and called names. And so he was building kind of that rapport and trying to give insight into what it's like to be a refugee because there's a lot of stigma and a lot of Islamophobia during this time in Canada. Um, this was in 2016 when we had 25,000 Syrian refugees come in, so they were getting bullied and there's a lot of hate towards them. So we did this campaign and we, we took photos of Syrian refugees, the family we worked with, and the youngest was, was six months old. Uh, and the little boy was two years old. And we cropped their eyes and then we pasted them on the outside of the school. And there was articles done and media and stuff and it was, it was just unbelievable. And the, the dad of the family came after, like after we did the photo shoot, I had, I had students from other classes volunteer to help and translate <laughs> who spoke, you know, anyways. So he says, he says to me, maybe one day my son can be an artist. So his two year old son had never used colors before, never drawn. And when we were all talking in the art room, uh, he looked bored, you know, a little two year old. He was like, okay, so I, I'm like a child inside. Clearly, I color for a living. Um, so I went, I went and grabbed some pastels and some paper, and he just lit up. And the dad told me they've just been running from war, so he's actually never colored before. And the kid went crazy. He was coloring everywhere, going nuts. And then when it was his time to take a photo, he he walks over with his colors, and we try and take them. He starts crying. So he's, <laughs> he's got like he's tear stained, and he's like literally clutching his colors for dear life when we take his photos. And it was so sweet. And that's when the dad was like, maybe in Canada, my son could be an artist. Yeah, it was amazing. Wow. That is incredible. It was it was amazing. Yeah. And they thanked us too because they were like, you know, we we don't have the skills to take photos. We don't have the skill, but we do have the story. And they thanked my students. And my students were just like, oh my gosh, because it was like everyone played a different role, but we all were working towards a common goal that was um, inspired and informed by the population. And this is how you properly do our social change. So it was really cool. I scrolled through your Instagram like and went I don't, I don't know how far I went back, but maybe like a year or something like that. And there was something, actually, it was probably a lot longer because it was a soccer post, but it said, um, it's something about being an athlete that's inexplainable, using your body as a weapon, feeling the power, strength, invincibility, rage through every muscle in your body, unstoppable. You said, I miss the physicality, the power, the adrenaline, the force. And it's like, even when you're talking now, it's like, I just, I fucking feel that energy. Like when you tell the stories, I, I hopped on your Instagram live the other day and I was like, yo, you didn't even like acknowledge me. You're just fucking going like, there's that same, same force, that same, that same energy in your art. And it's just, this isn't a question. It's just, it's super, super cool to see. Cause I, I have the same thing, you know, like, nice. I was an athlete for a long time and it just that bleeds through everything that you're doing and I just wanted to acknowledge that okay. and I'm going to shut up now. No, okay, what you're talking about though. So I did my thesis on Martin Luther King. Mm. So I studied his philosophy. I was obsessed with his philosophy of nonviolent peaceful resistance and the one term that you're describing that he lived and breathed was called soul force and that's what I call it. I call it soul force. Can you explain that a little bit? So soul force is like this the, the guiding passion 
ignite ignition, right? That just, it's exactly what you described. So it, it guides you for him, particularly the soul force was the kind of unstoppable passion he had towards fighting injustice. He would do whatever it took. Uh, he was invincible. He, he had just, yeah. So it's just like that, that soul that, that requires, it's why people listened to him when he spoke. Right. So he had mm -hmm. that magnitude. He had that charisma. He had, but most of all, he was, so passionate about his goals and nothing was going to stop him so that's kind of how he described it soul force yeah. mamba mentality i dig yeah. it i'm so obviously like and it's another thing i'm just obsessed with um but more in like my realm um like i was a singer songwriter for a long time and you mm -hmm. look at you look at like day one versus day 700 you know like you're not singing about the same things like your voice probably sounds a little bit different like the songs and the styles probably a little bit different can you just talk to me about like the evolution of your art i think like even when you just like the beginning of this conversation you said when i became an artist even though art was always a passion of yours you yeah. said when i became an artist was this moment so you can just talk about like that evolution um uh so i would say when i painted rodrigo in 2014 and I brought it to Brazil. That's and it, it. What was crazy about that is something told me to paint him. It was like I swear it was like the universe or some voice or something. But it got louder and louder and louder, and I couldn't shut it out. It was like paint him. Paint. It wasn't me. It was something outside of me. Uh, so I painted like I literally ignored it for so long. Well, not ignored it, but I just was busy with school and work. I waited till like the night before I went to Brazil to paint him, which is really stupid because oil paint does not dry. So <laughs> I had a wet oil painting that I brought with me on several planes and it was massive on wood and the customs the first customs agent was like we're honey you're going to brazil you can't take that with you and i turned it around and he ended up being from chile and i told him the story he started crying and this wow. happened wow. this happened about 20 different times pilots flight attendants people i had the pilot move his own bag to fit the painting i had flight attendants check on it every half an hour it was just it was insane and the power that this painting had i don't even know how to explain it it just it changed everything in my life, like everything. And the, I mean, this was the, so this is crazy. So the team Brazil, most of these kids, okay. These are, these kids come from the, they're the most marginalized kids in the world, literally. Okay. We had one kid from India who was forced into child labor, who worked 23 hours a day. He got an hour of sleep. And if he slept longer than an hour, they poured boiling water on him. He was, he was 13. Okay. So these kids have been saved from some of the most horrific experiences we can't even imagine. Um, and so Team Brazil came from the northern Brazil called Fortaleza. And it's one of the most dangerous cities in the world. I think ranked number eight in the world. And in Brazil at this time, 18 street children were murdered every hour. Every hour. And a lot of them by police. Like, you think the United States is bad? No, 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 no. Colored, like, colored Brazilians or Afro-Brazilians, uh, as they call them, were murdered in spades at this time. Okay. So these kids are coming from some of the most horrific you know situations and so the first time on the on the flight by the way so they get off the plane brazil team brazil finds it at like 10 p.m and we're like lined up along the side uh waiting for them to get off the bus and it's super dark super late out the painting was in the chapel non-denominational to there's like 11 million religions at this place so we had a chapel it's pitch black out Apparently the team walked by, someone saw Rodrigo's face. I don't know how, because the slit between the doors is like an inch. So I have no idea how. In the day, it's hard to see, but I call it divine intervention. 
So apparently the entire team sprinted in. I wasn't around when this happened. And they all surrounded the painting because nobody knew that I had painted it on the team. So I am walking by as they're walking out. Again, I had no idea they were in there. This site is huge. There's four soccer fields. Like it's a huge, huge event site. And I didn't know they were in there. And I'm walking by and then, and then they come out and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I stand, I'm just standing blocking them, blocking the sidewalk. And they're probably like this crazy white girl. And I don't speak Portuguese, so I just kind of outlined a square with my hands and then pretended I was painting. And like the look that they gave me when I did that, it's like, I don't even know how to, I can't describe it. It was the single most powerful, meaningful exchange. And it, it was involving no words I've ever experienced in my life. Like it was just, I was crying for three hours afterwards and they were all wow. crying. And it was just like, it was like someone was saying thank you to you, but from their soul that you did that was but they were strangers but then they were family also in that it was i don't know how to explain it it was it was insane and that is that's my beginning because every single painting i do every athlete i paint everything i paint i think of them and i think as long as i keep going one day i can have a platform so big that i can help these kids again and that is they've been my motivation this for the last six years so that, that's my beginning uh, and to where I am now, I'm doing a series. So I asked myself, I'm a total nerd, by the way, like huge nerd. <laughs> and I pose questions to myself all the time. Um, inquiry, questions of inquiry. And then in my subconscious, if I come across things, I'll like kind of put them in that category. It's like, okay, that'll inform me on this question of inquiry. So I, I asked myself a question about two years ago. I said, is there a way, like photojournalism has been remarkable in its ability to raise awareness about issues around the world, right? Uh, I was like, but is there a way to give children more of a voice using art? So yeah, you can take a photo of the starving child in Africa. That that's helped though. Those those photos have raised tons of awareness. But is there a way to give that child more advocacy, more power over the telling of his story? Is there a way? So I asked myself this question, but using my kind of art, and I came up with an answer, and that's what prompted all these series I'm starting. Um, so I realized that given you can use I can use my teaching ability and I can use my artistic ability. So I put on say, a three-day course for marginalized children. I'm actually, I was supposed to be in Camp Zatari in, in Jordan, the largest Syrian refugee camp in the world, doing this project next week, but coronavirus. Uh, so teach a three-day camp where it's a cultural exchange. So I, in exchange for the telling of their story, if they so choose to, I teach them art. So I, I had a four-day camp planned where I would teach kids all kinds of skills, um, sorry, pastels, drawing, painting. And then I'd ask them who would like to be uh, the subject of a portrait series I'm doing. And I explained to them what it's about. It's about raising awareness about children who come from your circumstance. And it's about helping kids like you. And then they get to choose if they want to be part of it. And then they, we take a photo shoot and then they choose the photo they want to be painted. So they can look proud and strong or however they want to look. And that's what I paint in the foreground. And then they do the artwork for the background so they get to tell their own story as the background of their own portrait and this is the series wow. i came up with answering my own question and i reached out to save the children and war child two of the biggest organizations that help these children and they were all over it so i'm actually going to be doing series with both of them addressing this in the next year so yeah that's kind of like the beginning and then where i am now for that Damn. That's, am that's amazing i it's crazy how much how far you've come and just Obviously, I didn't know you, but just hearing it in your voice, like how far you've come, but you've stayed true to yourself, right? You stayed true to that mission. How, like you were just recently 
featured in Forbes. And yeah. like for a lot of people that's a huge bucket list. How has that has that changed like your business? How has it really changed who you are or has it not? Um it was a serious serious milestone. It was more, you know, it was more validation because I'm not really in the art world, you know, the art world as an athlete um where everything you do is based on how talented you are and what you can leave on the field the art world is the exact opposite of that it has yeah. nothing to do with how talented you are it has absolutely nothing to do with how you know your skill level or your understanding of art like understanding of the game like it just doesn't and it's it really throws me off because it's like so opposite to what i know and i i really did i don't really like it uh and so i just lost my train of thought where am i going oh, okay sorry so um for me, it was more validation in this kind of world that I'm not yet fully a part of because I'm more a part of the athlete world. So it was this really, it was more validation, and it and I did I did get a lot of, a lot of messages like freaking thousands of messages from people around the world and a lot of support. And my my university also what was really meaningful to me is Southern University shouted me out and made a big deal of it and we're like we're so proud of our SU grad and graduating from that school like the education I received from Southern was I mean just night and day to any other university like I I graduated also from a top 30 school in the world and Southern the education I received is 10 times that and I hate how HBCUs are ranked so low it pisses me off because that education was priceless and it was from the telling and the voices of of the underrepresented and the oppressed and the teachers I had from around the world from West Africa who taught me the real African history you know I mean it's just priceless so that was really meaningful the way that they supported me through that um but yeah, like the the superficial aspect of the world that, because there is a, I work with celebrities and I work, you know, it's, it's the celebrity world can be, a, you know, superficial and can kind of pull you in. And I've stayed kind of out of that. That's why I live in Vancouver near the beach. And I choose <laughs> when I want to go beyond the scene because Vancouver is not the scene. So um, yeah, I've, I'm super down to earth and haven't changed in, in that way at all. Like I, I don't value money. I don't value fame. I don't value any of these things. It was real. What's been really weird is when I got verified, people were like thanking me for like responding to them in messages, people I've known forever. And I'm like, dude, like, come on. <laughs> I'm now a verified human being. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's <laughs> so, it made me sick though. It actually made me sick that we treat people so much differently. Like it's just, yeah. So it kind of had the opposite effect is the question of what you're asking. Was, okay. Yeah. You That's said that um, in going like just comparison between like the athlete world and the art world that um, skill and talent isn't so much like relevant there. Like what are those factors would you say then? So I, like I said, huge inquiry, huge nerd. I wanted to know why. So I, so in 1917, Duchamp painted a golden toilet. I'm sure you guys have heard of the golden toilet and his mm -hmm. favorite, his favorite um, urinal he painted and put in a gallery and signed it. And he golden toilet and a urinal sorry and he wanted he was just being a kind of an asshole like a, a little sarcastic uh he just was like kind of saying what would happen and the art people took it way too seriously and so then the question was can anything be considered art and for the last bloody 80 years the question has been yes i vehemently am opposed to this okay that's like like michelangelo is rolling over in his grave like what did you guys do i li literally gave you the playbook on how to be an artist and you just no. <laughs> so another so that that was it started the huge movement to what can and can anything be considered art the other part of that is there's a lot of money laundering in art 
So if anything can be considered art and we can make someone who doesn't need to do 10 years of art school or have the foundations in it and we can just build them up, then we can do that now. So lots of give rise to a lot of money laundering. Also, the American government um, through the second and first and second world war through the 20th century, they realized that art has uh, unique power to inspire social change. Like art was used during the civil rights movement. Art was used during World War I and II. Art was used, art's been a, propaganda art especially, has been a huge tool used by governments, used by civil rights organizations, used by different groups, movements. And the, the government was like, we don't like this. We don't like that the people have, are using art powerfully. So this is, this is, I learned this kind of conspiracy, but it also was backed by some courses and some professors in, in school that I spoke to. And so they created, they got together with, uh, the big art auction houses and the biggest gallerists and curators, etc. And the government kind of was like, okay, we want abstract art. We want art that doesn't really make you feel anything. And they propped this up and were like, make this worth more. And so it was kind of this kind of conspiracy they used to try and derail art. So that also is a thing. Uh, that's why, I mean, what did we see this year? Banana taped to a wall for 120k at Art Basel. <laughs> Money laundering and just BS, right? So the art world has yeah props up abstract art and contemporary art and art it doesn't make you feel anything this was the goal the goal was we don't we want to take the power away from art and that's what america's kind of done yeah that's fascinating yeah i knew there had to be a reason i'm like okay this you know there's got to be more to this but for me um in in i spent a lot of time in europe for example i didn't go to art school no one ever taught me how to paint i never looked at a youtube lesson nothing so i was called to the masters I was called to France and I go two or three times a year now, but my first time was I think in 20, it was in 2016. And I started to study in the Louvre and the Musée d'Orsay and I take pastels um, and they're the same pastels that uh, a lot of like Monet used, the same that Picasso used from the same store. So the oldest art store in Europe, but one of them is actually right across from the Louvre. Many people don't know that, but that's where Picasso used to shop in Monet. And I use the same pastels that are derived from the same pigments as their paint. So it's the same colors in the painting. And you're allowed to bring these in to study in some museums. So I went in and I take my pastels and I, people think it's painting too, because of how I use them, but I do studies and that's how I learned to paint um, like the masters. So I was taught that way. Well, I taught myself that way. And I was walking, walking through Paris outside one of the museums um, in about 2017, I think. And an art, this random like art curator I'm sorry, art historian stopped me. And he was like, are you an artist? Because I have my little art kit. He's like, come have a tea with me. I'm like, okay. And we started talking and he's like, what's your story? And I told him and he's like, I want you to know something. He's like, I've been an art historian for 10 years and we only consider someone an artist, a real artist, if they hear the call of the masters and they come study in the museums. He's like, every single person you see in the Louvre right now from the 20th and 19th century did the same thing you're doing now. And with, without being prompted, without knowing, you just feel it in your blood. You have to come and you have to study. And all the, all the greatest artists I know have done that. So that was really cool. Wow. That's nuts. What, I want to dive deeper into your, your experience at an HBCU. Because I feel like a lot of people don't kind of write off those universities, even though they're some of the best in the nation, mm -hmm. uh, really. What what was the difference between like, what, what do you think it was uh, you getting a degree from Southern and graduating and everything like that compared to um, what do you, 
the difference between my degree and your degree? What do you think an HBCU really brings to the table? Well, I went to, so I went to University of Louisiana at Lafayette and I went to Southern. So I went to like, yeah. code, like you know, predominantly white school, predominantly black school. Um, honestly, it was just the, the rich, rich authenticity of the education. That's like the best way to describe it. You could just feel it was, it was truth. It was like, the, cause when you, you know, truth by the way that it feels right. And the truth embodied in the curriculum and the different perspectives and the the fight that all the teachers had these teachers were passionate like they they wanted to fight they had to fight for this curriculum you know and they they were so passionate about what they taught and they were so knowledgeable from different parts of the world uh i had a like a louisiana history teacher who was a football player you know i had a um, teacher from west africa who not only taught west african history based on curriculum but also ancestral knowledge right that's huge speaking to the history that he's learned through generations and generations of Ghanaian people on, in West Africa. And so the richness of this, of what I was taught, it was just so powerful. The power, there's such power in truth. And that's, that's how I would describe the education. And then from the cultural aspect, it was unbelievable. My school is right on the Mississippi River. You could just go there and feel the history, you know, and the culture of the school. Like we have the best freaking the human jukebox. We got the best band, drum, you know, marching band in the nation. <laughs> Um, going to football games, uh, see, going to different like frat events like the Qs, the AKAs, the Kappas, seeing them stomp through the yard, everything. It was just, it was so full of culture and life. And I didn't, one thing that was also interesting is being in the South as a white Canadian, you know, first at Louisiana Lafayette, my whole team was racist. They were all rich, white, Southern Texas girls. My coach was a racist. And I grew up in Canada. All my friends were African and Caribbean. I went to an inner city school that became a soccer school run by Canada Soccer. And so all my friends were always different ethnicities. And predominantly, I was always really drawn to like different, you know, Caribbean African cultures. So a lot of my, and a lot of them played soccer. So those were my friends. So I came down south and all these white, like white Americans were so freaking racist, including my teammates. And you, I kind of had to like decide if I wanted, like you kind of had to choose a race. So for me, it was really easy because my first, you know, interactions and hanging out with my soccer team, we were, there were some baseball guys and they were using the N-word freely. And I was like, OK, this is a very easy decision at this point. Um, and so I only had, I think, maybe two two white friends in six years in the South that were American, two or three. And it was like it was like when I walked on my first campus, the commonly white one, Lafayette, Louisiana. It was like, oh, she sided with them. And it was like, I didn't exist. Like I walked, I remember this so, so vividly. I'd walk down the sidewalk and white people would just like look past me. It was just crazy. It was like, and even though my university was 70% white, I remember it being predominantly African-American because I would only go to spaces that I was accepted and I wasn't accepted. I was like, I was called a race trader many times. So I was accepted in black spaces, but not white spaces, if that makes sense. It was, it's very, yeah. That's nuts. I it's it's crazy because I I I'm, I'm really passionate about diversity and inclusion and I talk about it and I I feel like it's a, almost a buzz term these days. But like people, um, if you didn't know, we're in Milwaukee and Milwaukee traditionally, unfortunately, is either one or two in the most segregated cities in America. Mm-hmm. And the more I talk to people about just how things are here. Uh, the more I realize that people just 
don't want to talk about it or they don't believe it's happening. Like I, I talk to people almost uh, weekly, really, and they still think that there isn't racism in America. And just hearing your story to a point where you're just disregarded or anything like that, that's just it's, it's crazy. And I'm glad you said it because I hope those same people are listening to the podcast selfishly. But like it's it's just nuts just hearing those types of stories especially sitting from my perspective i'm originally from chicago mm-hmm. and just hearing like i i grew up in uh i'm 100 percent puerto rican grew up in an area of chicago called humble park where it's essentially little puerto rico and just hearing the the story that you told and uh, taking it to some of the the stories that my parents have told me um from growing up in that area in the 70s where it was nothing but gangs and then uh, the, the polish people moved in and basically kicked everyone out and mm-hmm. Um, it's just really, really, really cool, um, in a, in a weird way, just hearing that story so that people can actually hear that this is a problem here and, uh, stop, stop saying that it isn't. I remember speaking to that, my first day, my first day of school, uh, I was on crutches because I tore my ACL and I had just had surgery. So I'm like crutching along and now Louisiana Lafayette had a swamp with alligators. We're the only school in in the U S I believe in the swamp. It was crazy. So I'm like crutching along past wow. the swamp and this football player comes up to me, Booker Jenkins, African-American football player. And he asked me, I was really shy back then too. I'm not shy anymore, but I was ex- exceptionally shy then. And he was like, can I walk you to class? I'm like, okay. And he's like, I need to teach you something. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, I want you to watch as we're walking. I want you to watch people on either side of the road. I just want you to watch their reaction as we walk. I'm like, okay. And I was going real slow because I was on crutches. So we're crossing the main street on campus, Rex Boulevard, and I, it's like my, my vision went from color to black and white. That's how I describe it, because I wasn't, I wasn't aware until that, like, you know, and he was aware that I wasn't aware. So we're walking, and I noticed that one side of the street was white, and one side of the street was predominantly black, and it was segregated, hmm. and everyone was staring at us. And we get to class. He doesn't say a word to me. That's, that's all he said was in the beginning. We get to class, he stops, and he, he turns to me and said, you learned something? I was like, I just nodded, and he's like, you needed that. And we've been friends ever since. Wow. It was amazing. Yep. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. I had another friend, Tyron Johnson, still my friend, um, but I remember I had a little bit of crush on him, played on the basketball team, and I was walking into class one day, and he saw me, and he just had a conversation, but he really, he really wouldn't meet my eyes kind of thing, and he was tall. Uh, six foot nine and he goes excuse me miss but can I speak to you I'm almost asking permission in a way which is weird to me you know uh and I'm like yeah he's like it's just and then he goes it's just I've never spoken to a white girl before and in my head is like I'm like does he mean this week or this month no he, <laughs> he literally meant in his entire life he went to an he lived in an all-black neighborhood all-black elementary school all-black high school then got a scholarship as a you know a phenom athlete and he just had never spoke to, and that was like whoa you know so those two experiences kind of like that was my first week of school i was like okay I, you are not in canada anymore <laughs> wow that's yeah. nuts yeah and his grandma that's... worked on a plantation so mm. mm-hmm. yeah there's a whole reality that people aren't aware of yep people people and it's it's not entirely their fault you know but at at some point you do have to go out i remember um someone was reaching out i was having a conversation they're like i'd love to host something where 
just a bunch of minority groups, you know, like whatever it is, like just pick one, like let's just say it's black people. Um, and everyone else can just ask some questions, you know, and mm -hmm. have a safe space so that we can learn. And like, I'm about the idea, you know, but um, there's something in there that, where they're like, I'm just worried that people are going to be afraid if they get snapped back on, like if they get clapped, you know, it's like, yo, like, don't ask that question, you know, but it's like, for a lot of like, people, you know, a lot of cultures, like, that's always been the reality. Like, I can't, wake up you know and like not be worried like i can't wear this because i might be perceived this way i can't say this because i'll go to jail i can't do this because this will happen you know mm -hmm. like there's just there's a whole reality that people aren't aware of and you're not aware until you're aware yeah 100 percent. well i remember at southern i took professional development course and the first two weeks of class okay we, so our first assignment was i need you guys to make a resume and then like literally the first like two weeks he talked about how based on the name, your name, how much discrimination you will receive based yeah. on your name, your education. And he just went through. And this is not something you would have to do with a class full of white people. Because he was saying, look, if your name is a black sounding name, you will receive discrimination. And this is why. And went through lesson after lesson of how to get like it was just it was, you know, it was mind blowing. I was like, wow, realities I wouldn't have. I don't have to deal with, you know. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could rant about this for days. We should make a <laughs> we should make a film on it. Right. We have a question that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast. I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but um, what makes you strange on purpose? Oh man, being born. <laughs> um, strange on purpose. I identify with being a nerd, so I think nerds. Well, nerds run the world. So, like, no, but they, they really do now. I know. I, I work with, um, I teach lessons to profoundly gifted. So that's like IQs of 180 plus. And um, a lot of these kids get bullied. And I had one little girl who was getting bullied. And she said, what do I do? I said, just show them, show them the top 20 Forbes list on the Forbes list and ask them to point out who's not a nerd on there. because She's getting bullied for being a nerd. And she did that in the work. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I identify with being a nerd and being weird and being, you know, with the, I love that quote. You laugh, but I laugh. You laugh because I'm different. I laugh because you're all the same. That's 